Good morning. Good morning to each of you. If you, uh, in your Bibles, if you'll turn to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19, we snuck into the chapter, uh, the first passage of it last week, and God willing, this week uh, we'll go a little bit further into Luke 19. I think you should be getting uh, handed out to you a handout, um, so that will have all the text and most of them, just a, a lot of the notes you might want on there, references, etc. Um, so Luke chapter 19, we just heard the first 10 verses read. Um, Pastor Scott did that during the confession and pardon, and so now this will pick us up with verse 11. And as he heard these things, sorry, already messed up and I'm only four words in. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants, to whom he had given the money to be called to them, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your minna has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. Verse 18. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minna has made five minas. And he said to him, And to you, and you are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I laid in a, away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more, more who, to who everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not even what he has, will be taken away. But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the kindness of the scriptures, especially when we look at the very words of the Lord Jesus God of all gods in human flesh, walking among us and teaching us about 
the things of you. Father, thank you. Thank you that it's recorded. Thank you that's recorded faithfully. Thank you that it has been passed down. Thank you that we have it in our own language. Thank you that we can read it. Thank you that we can hear it. Father, thank you. And now, Father, would we respect the text and how we listen to it? Father, would you uh, help us to respect you, your Holy Spirit who gave us your word? Father, I pray that the truths of this text will settle in in our hearts, that we will follow and believe that Jesus Christ is coming again, that he will reign, and that he will ask of us, what have we done about the kingdom's business? Father, I pray that you would settle that in our minds and hearts, that you would help us to believe it. Father, give us help. We need your help, and we pray for it. And we trust the Spirit who gave his word, that he'll use his word for his people this morning. Amen. Well, um, we're going to walk right through this. Um, this is a lot of text. You're probably thinking there's no way. Um, there might not be, but I think there may be. But we're going to have to jump right in. And honestly, this just preaches itself. It is beyond beautiful um, and very helpful, but also very, very tough. Um, so let's walk through it and see what our Lord Jesus says. So starting there in verse 11, he says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So our passage begins by giving us three reasons as to the occasion of why Jesus feels the need to teach this parable. First, we're told that Jesus tells the followers this story on the heels of all the other things they were hearing. So what were these things? Well, if you go back and you look in chapter 18, right there at around verse 31, we, we are told that the disciples are going to leave their current location, which was kind of down in Perea, and they were going to head towards Jerusalem. And in that passage, in verses 31 through 34 of chapter 18, Jesus tells the disciples why he's doing that. He explains that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, all the promises of the Messiah that would suffer. But you also remember that the disciples were blinded to this fact. They were unable to understand this reality, this idea of a suffering king, a suffering Messiah. So they did not understand what he meant. We also discussed how the disciples uh, would have been shocked when Jesus turns to them and says, hey, I'm going up to Jerusalem. They would have been very surprised by this because just a few weeks prior, Jesus had raised a guy by the name of Lazarus from the dead after he'd been dead, dead, very dead. And that caused a huge uproar. His fame, Jesus's fame exploded. And, and now there are a lot of people that want Jesus dead. He's a marked man at the epicenter of his hit squad, if you would, would be situated in Jerusalem. So Jesus turns to all his followers and says, hey, we're headed up to Jerusalem. This would have puzzled them to see Jesus walk right into the storm. So right after showing the blindness of the disciples, Jesus 
makes his way up. You have to go up there to get into uh, from where they were in Perea. You have to go up there to get into uh, Jericho, and he's headed towards Jerusalem. And there we get the story right on the heels of the disciples of Jesus opening up the eyes of a blind beggar. And it offers us a picture of the neediness of those who turn to Jesus for salvation. And simultaneously, it offers us encouragement that this Jesus can open up blind eyes like the spiritually blind eyes of the disciples. So while in Jericho, Jesus shows mercy. And that was uh, covered last week to a man by the name of Zacchaeus, a man who had been living off of defrauding his own people in order to gain riches and comfort. And Jesus goes and visits Zacchaeus at his home. And there Zacchaeus is converted and becomes a follower of Jesus. So the last sentence before this passage we're looking at this morning Jesus summarizes that teaching and he says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So when it says that these are the things they were hearing as they heard these things, those are the things that they are hearing. So that's the first reason Jesus gives a parable. But the second reason he says here in, in verse 11 is because this is around the occasion because he was near Jerusalem. So as the disciples settled upon the fact that I guess we are going to Jerusalem, that they had failed to see the real reason they were going, that Jesus may suffer as the Messiah for our sins. They were blinded to that. But as they neared Jerusalem, they had to come up with another reason. They had to conjure up some reason for why they were going. And they had come up with an explanation for this purpose. Jesus knows the reason that they had conjured it up. And that gives us the third reason the, uh, for their third occasion for this, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So one of the main reasons for the teaching that we're looking at this morning that helps you to keep in mind what's going on here, one of the main reasons or occasions for this teaching is because the disciples believed they were heading into the eye of the storm in order to conquer, to see Jesus conquer his enemies and immediately begin his reign as king. Were they wrong? Well, they were not wrong that Jesus was heading to Jerusalem in order to secure a kingdom. That's entirely true. And they're certainly not wrong that Jesus will be the promised forever king one day. They were entirely wrong on the timing and the way. They missed it. They missed it completely. You know, may we learn humility from this as we try to describe the ways of God. Let us be certain that Jesus is the reigning king and that God the Father has ordained every circumstance and event according to his sovereign plan. Let us be less certain about how our current moment and every one of our current events fits into the plans and the ways of God. Let us be certain that Jesus will reign fully, visibly, and without any competition one day. 
Let us be less certain about how we go from here and when we go from here to that moment. But there's another warning that exists for us here. Let us not imagine King Jesus short of a cross. The disciples liked the idea of Jesus as king and were willing to have him bypass all that suffering of the cross. But the cross, the cross of Jesus, is where we are made right with God. Without the cross, Jesus could be king. Say it again. Without the cross, Jesus could be king. But neither his disciples nor any of us could be part of his kingdom. Friend, have you settled on the fact that the only way you can be right with God is through the cross of Jesus Christ? If you have questions as you hear that about how or why that is, please see me. See one of the pastors afterwards so we would be happy to discuss with you why and how that is. All right, verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman, it's a rich man, went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. So Jesus now begins the story. The main character is this rich man. Notice that the man goes into a far country to which he will travel and then later return. So Jesus is likening himself to the rich man in the story. Fair enough, he's the richest man who's ever lived by far. He owns it all. So he's showing that like the rich man, he's not ready to take a kingdom. He must go to a far country where he will receive permission. We know it will be permission granted from the father. And then he will return later to take his kingdom. Jesus is correcting his followers' notion that he's about to take the kingdom. He's starting already. His travels to Jerusalem are the beginning, the first step in his journey to take the kingdom. They are not the consummation of that. All right, so we got this rich man. He's on his way to go get permission to rule the kingdom and come back. Verse 13, before he goes, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minutes, and said to them, engage in business until I come. So Jesus says that the rich man gets each of his servants, followers, 10 minas. A mina was an amount of money. It was, uh, it, it was an amount about two and a half years of salary. So take the average person's salary, more than double it. That's an amount of a mina. That's no small amount of money by any means. That's a lot of money. So uh, the rich man gives the money to his servants. And don't miss this. This is key. He commands them, engage in business until I come. This is a key, key point to the story. The rich man doesn't leave and say, hey, could you hang on to this for me while I'm gone? It's not what he says. He commands them to do business with it. What does it mean to do business? Well, no surprise here. Doing business in the ancient Near East is a lot like doing business today. You do good business when you take an asset 
and you allow it to grow in value over time. You've done a good job in business if you do that. You do bad business if you take an asset and fail to let it grow in value over time. The rich man commanded his followers and servants to increase the value of the deposit which he had entrusted to them. That's the whole story here. We've been considering as a church in our Christian growth group, the Great Commission. The Great Commission is nothing short of this moment in this parable. It is the moment when the richest man on the planet, Jesus Christ, turns to his followers and says, I'm giving you the scriptures, the gospels, and the spirit of God. Engage in business until I come. All right, so verse 14. Kind of a turn here. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So as a rich man travels to receive his kingdom, it's kind of funny. I don't know why I always picture this in a cartoon, but it's kind of cool that way. But so he's traveling to receive the kingdom. Another group of folks, people who are going to be would be subjects of his they got to take a different path. It's just awkward otherwise. Or they're on their way all to the same direction. They're going to the same place to protest this. So they hated the rich man and they wanted to stop the rich man from ever becoming their king. Now, this would actually have been a very familiar idea to the people in Judea and Jericho. So some quick background. It's great. So Judea which is the region there where Jerusalem and Jericho are, Judea was part of the vast Roman Empire at the time. And in Rome, in the time of Jesus, was ruled by uh, Caesar. So when Jesus was born, it was ruled by a guy by the name of Caesar Augustus. And then uh, about a decade later, uh, a guy by the name of Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius, he takes over. But Rome, I mean, it was a vast empire. So they were so smart in so many things they did. I mean, really so brilliant. One of the things they did is they realized, look, we can't rule everything ourselves. We can't micromanage this. So they allowed uh, uh, subordinate kings to rule in local areas. So the subordinate king of Judea and Galilee, that area, when Jesus was born, was a guy by the name of Herod the Great, self-named, of course. Uh, it, it was Herod, you remember, who sent out the uh, call, decree, to slaughter all of the Hebrew boys under the age of two as he tried to snuff out uh, the, the Messiah. Um, now, Herod uh, was not a Roman, and he wasn't a Jew. He was an Idumean. Also, in the Old Testament, the Idumeans would have out were called Edomites. Um, that's an interesting bit of trivia for you. Recall the founder of the Edomites in the Old Testament is a guy by the name of Esau. So recall that Esau is the brother from which Jacob stole the birthright, all the promises of God, right? So that's pretty cool. It's probably outside of our scope this morning, but that's pretty cool that the promised one of Jacob is marching in to Jerusalem to take the kingdom or to begin the process of taking the kingdom and the one who is ruling over the kingdom at the time is a son of none other than Esau. That's just pretty cool. Anyway, so Herod the Great, he died. 
um, when Jesus was a boy and he split his kingdom into fourths. And so the area up there in Galilee, which is where Jesus and John and Peter and all those guys grew up, um, that area was ruled by a guy by the name of Herod Antipas. This is the Herod Antipas who beheaded John. But down in Judea, Jericho area, that area is a guy by the name of one of the other sons of Herod. That's given to Herod Archelaus. Now, Herod Archelaus was a very bad man. He built a beautiful castle in none other than the city of Jericho. And so uh, Archelaus becomes this, he, this rule, this area is given to him. And he decides, you know what? I got to make sure these people fear me. So he decides to slaughter 3,000 Jews. That'll usually get people's attention. And so when it became known that he's going to rule their area, the Jews in the area decided, no, 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 we got to protest. So Archelaus has to make his trip up to Rome. At that time, it was Augustus was still there, Caesar Augustus. He's got to make his trip up to Rome to get permission to rule the area. And guess what's happening as he's going? There's a league of citizens who were following him. Most of them Jews. There's some weird stuff there because Antipas sent like some of his family members too to protest. But anyway, the, they're all on their way to try to tell Caesar Augustus, please don't let this guy rule us. We don't want this guy to rule over us. And Augustus actually uh, doesn't fully give them everything he wants, but he, he, he gives him a demoted kingship. I'm always calling it like a kingship with an asterisk on it. And so Archelaus actually ends up being the ruler of that area, but it was a short-lived time. They ended up coming, Rome took it under more control and they put in a governorship. So that's why we get a governor by the time Jesus is there by the name of Pontius Pilate. So meanwhile, back at the ranch. So when Jesus tells this story, he is likely within the close proximity to the palace that Archelaus once occupied. The idea of a hated rich man becoming king while the citizens protest is going to be completely known in a fresh notion to the people of this area. But Jesus is not a rich man who slaughtered his subjects. No, Jesus is a rich man who was slaughtered for his subjects. Jesus is the rich man who laid it all on the line for his subjects. And still, and this is the point, still his subjects revolt and head in front of him to try to destroy his rule. And this is what Jesus is saying in the fact that he says this on his way into Jerusalem. Come on, this is beautiful. As Jesus heads to Jerusalem to bring peace between God and men, the Jewish leaders are plotting in the very house of God, the temple, to have him destroyed. And sadly, many of them, highly mistaken, likely felt they were doing the very work of God and putting them to death. 
Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came to him saying, Lord, your minas made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you've been faithful and very little, you shall have 40 over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Jesus now turns his attention to the servants in the parable. Bear in mind that Jesus was likely followed, not likely, he was followed by very large crowds, some who were lightly slightly interested in some who were deeply committed. So as the nobleman returns, he calls the servants before him. Notice the humility of the first servant as he says, Lord, your mena has made 10 minutes more. Nowhere do you see the first person pronoun, I. This is a fully passive sentence. All responsibility belongs to the rich man. And then gives him 10 cities. And following example of the first servant, the second servant says, Lord, your minas has made five minas more. And similarly, he was given five cities. So one of the keys to this passage is the servants had nothing to start with. They had nothing to start with. They, what they took was given to them as a gift. They were given something they didn't earn and truly never owned. It was the rich man's the entire time. They were entrusted to work to increase the value of what the rich man had given them for the future of the rich man's kingdom and the returning king. Believers in Jesus Christ have been trusted with a far more massive deposit than two years of salary. We have been given the Holy Spirit who has given us the gospel. He's given us the scriptures. He's given us the church and all the means that we need to do the king's business. The faithful servants in this passage didn't yield a tenfold increase, I'm sure, or a fivefold increase by considering the task of the kingdom every once in a while, when it was convenient, when time permitted. They had to prioritize the coming of the kingdom. They had to deeply believe He's coming back. He really is coming back. Brothers and sisters, do we recognize the good deposit entrusted to us? The rich man did not leave his servants with tickets to the kingdom when we return. He left them with a rich deposit that could bring about future riches for the kingdom. As believers, we have been given the gospel to bring us to faith and salvation. We've been given the incredible gift of the scriptures in our language so we can read and understand it. We have been given the Holy Spirit to dwell in us and refine us. We have been given church to covenant together so that we can work together for the kingdom. The gospel which we heard, which we have believed, came from a faithful servant of God. That same gospel is ready to bear fruit in others if we'll share it. The scriptures, which have opened up our eyes 
to the ways and the nature of God are ready to open up the eyes and hearts of other believers should we teach them and show them. The acts of serving the church, both individually and corporately, are incredibly valuable things, this idea of service. When exercised with humility and care by the Spirit of God, servants of God have gone before us. They've changed our diapers. They've paid their tithes. They visited the sick. They prayed with the hurting. They listened to the downcast. They mailed cards to the lonely. They prayed for the church. That any of us would have time, energy, much less the desire to serve King Jesus is nothing more than a massive, massively valuable deposit from the king to us to bring value to the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, if you're actively serving the king in the kingdom, would you be encouraged today? The king, he's really coming back. One of the things this passage that often throws me is the anxiety of doing business. At, at first glance, we can feel anxious as we ponder the analogy. We may think, I honestly wouldn't know what to do if you handed me a bunch of money and asked me to go increase the value. But as believers, we're not simply giving cash and asked to come up with some business plan. We've been given a deposit, a proven business plan, a promise that it cannot fail. We've been given the spirit and he's given us the gospels. He's given us the scriptures and he's given us the church. I think you can see that in the passage. I believe it's implied in the first two servants' responses. See, they respond the way I would imagine a person would respond if they were given a foolproof plan and ample resources to carry it out. That is to say, let's just say you gave me a business plan and all of the resources I needed to carry that business plan out. And you return a few years later and things have gone well. And you ask me about it. Wouldn't it be odd for me to respond like this? Well, I took the plan you wrote, the plan that you financed and directed, and I got to tell you, I am super proud to say that I was able to make it a success without adding any resources of my own. I actually had no more ideas. I, all I did is carry out your plan. Super proud to tell you that I have done great with it. That's odd. It's, that's weird. It would make much more sense for me to respond with something like what the servants did. Well, your plan was taken. It was followed. I'm sure you're not surprised. It increased in value, just like you set up. That's the analogy that we have as the servants of the kingdom of God. It's not up to us to be creative and ingenious. We just follow the plan we've been given. It cannot, it will not fail. Verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept away, laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. 
He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man. This is a question. Taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Okay. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the minna from him. Give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. Tell you that everyone who has more will be given. But for one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Notice from the start the difference between the response of the servant and the other two. Most especially, notice that the first two never use the first person pronoun, I, not once. Notice how this servant does over and over. Lord, here is your minna, which I laid away. Then notice who he blames for his lackluster efforts. Because you are a severe man, you take, you reap. But of course, these are just all excuses. As Jesus points out, even if the man believed those things about the rich man, then surely he would have done something to make it increase in value if you're so scared of the guy. As the rich man points out, if you're so scared, then why didn't you just play it safe and give it to the bank and let them do the work for you? So what did the servant do that brought the ire of this nobleman? He did nothing. And that's the problem. Again, if we consider this by considering the idea of someone giving us a bag of cash and expecting us to come up with some planned, brilliant idea to grow it, that seems hard. This is not the analogy. The analogy is giving this guy a foolproof business plan, all the money he needs for startup costs, and a full list of directions to how to run the business. The only way you can mess that up is to do what he did and do nothing. So the rich man demands the men to be taken from the final servant, the unfaithful servant, and given to the first servant. And the immediate response of everyone is, but the first guy already has 10. Another way to put it, that's not fair. Response of the rich man is exactly. That's why it's going to him. Jesus explains here kingdom logic. You could call this kingdom economics 101. I love this. There's so many things that are like this about Christianity. It just turns everything on its head. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. I love this because it makes the socialist and the capitalist cringe at the exact same time. The, the capitalist cringes at the idea of people being given things. People should earn things, says the capitalist. But the, the kingdom economy says that if any of us has anything that has kingdom value, then we certainly didn't earn it. It had to be given to us. Furthermore, if we actually deserve something, we aren't going to get what we deserve, but we'll always get something much better. The socialist cringes at the idea that not everyone is leaving with the exact same account balance. 
Instead of robbing those who have, he is actually robbing those who have not. This is how the kingdom economy works. We are all given immense grace. We have heard the gospel. Folks, there are billions on the planet that have never heard it. We've heard it. It's a massive deposit of grace. We have access to the word of God. Most people on the planet cannot pick up the scriptures and read them. It's a massive deposit. We have a church to which we belong, who believe in the scriptures. What a gift. Either we do something with it, or it will be taken from us. I don't think this third servant represents an actual believer. I see no way a genuine believer could so misunderstand King Jesus. Far from being harsh and severe, our King is gentle and lowly. Far from taking what is not his, he gives what is his to those who don't deserve it. He is, after all, the one who came to seek and save the lost. This servant represents many people who have taken in the word of God. They've heard the gospel of God, acknowledged it, and hidden it away. They didn't toss it out, but they have not acted upon it. They haven't worked a bit to increase its value. Merely holding the gospel makes no more sense than merely holding on to a foolproof business plan. From the one who merely has and holds, it will be taken. And then 27. Really listen. Don't tune this out. It's really helpful for biblical theology. But as for me, these enemies of man, mine, who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So now we see what's happened to those citizens who tried to thwart the new king from becoming king. There's no way to sugarcoat this. The Jesus of Hallmark cards and the Jesus of mainline liberal Christianity, they may not speak this way. But the Jesus of the Bible does. He's not vindictive. He's not harsh. But he's just. And he's righteous. And there's nothing more wicked than keeping the sheep of God from their rightful shepherd. It's wicked and it will be punished. This was a stern warning to those who sought to keep the God of the universe from taking his seat on the throne. 
So the takeaways of this text, to be quite honest, they're heavy. The toughest point is, quite honestly, there's just no place to hide. We're either one of the faithful servants, or an unfaithful servant, or an enemy. And the outcomes, they couldn't be any more stark. As Jesus walks towards Jerusalem, he had in his presence some faithful servants who would soon understand the treasure they were given. Praise God, they saw it and loved it. And he had some unfaithful servants who were given the same word as the others. They just covered it up. And then there were those enemies who were plotting against his rule. There's a missionary, um, it's a British missionary back in the 19th century, uh, and uh, his name was C.T. Studd, and he, he, was, he actually went out with Hudson Taylor, India, China, Africa, um, and uh, he's got a beautiful poem, you can look it up, um, but one of the last lines, his, his biography is unreal, the, the, the loss he felt, like almost all of them, they just, they lost so much. They went out, they, they rarely ever came back. They were almost always buried on foreign soil. And many of them lost children while they were on the field, lost their wives, etc. And this is what he wrote uh, in this poem. I think it's titled, Only One Life Till Soon Be Passed. He wrote this line, only these lines, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, happy, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. It's beautiful. I really appreciate the songs that uh, Pastor Scott picked for us. If you want a way to reflect on the sermon for this week, go back and look at every one of those songs and realize how they tie in here. It's, it's really helpful. Our sovereign God, how he's in charge of it all. This is all under his direction. All glory be to Christ. Nothing in us, all glory be to Christ before the throne. Yes, we're going before the throne, but so helpful that song reminds us that we will stand before the throne. That's very scary, but all of it, is because Christ, we can trust his grace and what he's done. And finally, by the grace of God, this morning we're going to finish with I surrender all, which is really mostly a prayer of, of us praying. We're not saying we can do this. We're not saying, hey, we will do this. It's a prayer saying, God, I want to. Now help me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's so stunning. Thank you for it. Father, thank you that you have given us the opportunity to hear it. But we know with that opportunity is a responsibility. We've got to do something with it. We've got to do something with it to increase the kingdom value. But Father, would we not feel anxiety as if this is something we can pull off, would we be reminded that you will do the work? You're fully in charge. You will accomplish it all. 
Father, give us help in that. Father, I do pray that you would first move us to the point where there is a deep desire to honestly surrender it all to you. Father, I pray for that. Just pray in my own heart. There would be a desire. Just give it all. Father, I pray for that. I pray that you would do that for us as a church. Thank you for the rich man who went to the cross. And I'm so thankful that he is just waiting, waiting right there by the Father, by you, our Father. He's just waiting for you to turn and say, it's all yours. Go back and get your servants. Father, we look forward to that. We thank you for it. We ask these things in the name of the Spirit of God. Amen.